Welcome back to Beyond the Price, a podcast from CoinPost that goes beyond the flashing numbers to explore how Bitcoin fits into the global economy and how real people and real companies are actually using it, especially in Asia. Since last episode was the 10th full episode, I thought we'd use this one to look back on the best moments from each conversation so far. We've had some really great discussions, which is thanks entirely to my guests, and I even found some things I'd missed when I was editing this one, so I hope you hear something new and check out the full episodes. Big thanks to you guys too, I'd definitely lose motivation if no one was listening, so although I have a long way to go as an interviewer or a moderator, I really appreciate your support so far. The first episode was with climate researcher Daniel Batten. I was ecstatic when he said yes, and he brought the goods. This is him talking about how Bitcoin mining can actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The amazing thing about methane is that it's 84 times as warming as carbon dioxide over a 24-year period. It's rising at a parabolic rate, and yet very little has been done about curbing it even though the United Nations has said that it's our strongest lever to reduce climate change in the next 25 years. And when I did some research about what our third climate tech fund was going to be, we looked at the issue of methane and we started to ask the question, well, where's it coming from? And it comes from three main sources. So it comes from agriculture, comes from oil, gas and coal extraction, as a byproduct, and it also comes from landfills. And last year, NASA did some aerial satellite emissions measurements of the air that came out of landfills, or just above the landfills. And they found that landfills were emitting between two and three times more methane than anyone thought. And then I looked at the question, well, what's the growth rate of landfills? And what's the growth rate of agriculture? And I found that actually landfill methane is growing at twice the rate of agriculture emissions. You put those two things together and landfills by 2032 will be our number one source of human caused methane. And I thought, well, if that's the case, surely someone's doing something about that. And to some extent they are. So what happens is methane gets produced by landfills because you have organic matter that goes into them and it gets compressed without the presence of air and when things decay anaerobically they produce methane and so that methane currently is a couple of things will happen or three things chiefly number one they'll flare it and that means they'll just burn it second thing is they will try to monetize it by selling the electricity to the grid so what happens is you purify that methane you send it to a generator, that generator converts the electricity, uh, the methane rather, into electricity using a combustion engine, and then the electricity is sold back to the grid. Uh, that's a wonderful solution because you're turning pollution into an asset, and at the same time, whilst they are producing some carbon dioxide, remember that's only 1 84th as heating as methane is over a 20-year period. So on net balance, it's, a, it's, it's the best solution possible. Um, and this is something that's been around for a long time. The problem has been, what do you do when you cannot sell that power back to the grid? Because the grid may be aging, you may need a major substation upgrade, which is going to cost tens of millions of dollars, or there may be some regulatory issues, which means you cannot sell that power back to the grid, such as in Mexico. Well, in those cases, what you need is an on-site user. And you can see the problem here. There's not a lot of people who want to set up business on a landfill for some strange reason. <laughs> and... And even if they did, 
Why would you want to spend all that money on generators and gas collection equipment simply to chase cheap electricity? And here, once again, that curious anomaly of Bitcoin becomes a real asset. Because Bitcoin miners, unique in the world, have 80% of their operational budget coming from electricity, they will chase it. They will pay for that gas capture and collection system. They will pay for the generators. They will bear the inconvenience of being in a landfill because they don't care where they locate. They are naturally scavengers of cheap energy. The economic incentives in line and they will soak that up and they will locate on site at a landfill. And that's extraordinary because no one else is prepared to do that. And we're talking about by 2032, 30% of all our methane emissions, more than 30% will come from landfills and Bitcoin mining companies can potentially mitigate up to half of that. Not all of it, sometimes there'll be other better solutions, but on half of those landfills where they can't sell back to the grid, doesn't make sense to do RNG or any of those other things you can do with methane gas. For those landfills, Bitcoin mining companies who are collecting that gas, purifying it, sending it to a generator, generating electricity, using that electricity on site to do Bitcoin mining, they're going to be responsible for destroying millions upon millions of tons of emissions that otherwise would be going into the atmosphere causing climate change. Next up was Ego Death Capital's Nico Lechuga, and this is him talking about why they only invest in Bitcoin companies, not other crypto projects. Within cryptocurrency, there's this called this trilemma in between decentralization, scalability, and um, security. And you cannot have all three things. Picture this triangle in your head. So Bitcoin's the most secure and it's the most decentralized, if we call it, uh, asset within the space. And But it's not scalable. At five to seven transactions per second, it's slow. Um, and what, what this did, like it not being scalable, provided an avenue for these like altcoins to come in and um, and compromise on decentralization or scalability or excuse me, or security for scalability. What we end up finding though, is when you compromise at a, at a foundational level. So what the, the space calls a layer one uh, for uh, decentralization and or security is that you cannot form a, a new global monetary system on top of it as you're, you're in essence building on an unstable foundation. Um, what we end up finding is that these projects, while they can be interesting and, and generate a lot of hype and buzz, they're, they're generally very short term. They're highly speculative. Um, they have limited real world utility today. Um, and the, the people that are following these projects from a retail perspective um, are gender, generally pretty fickle. And one of the reasons why is because they've been conditioned as retail investors to jump from one project to another, depending on the, the rate of return that that project can yield them. So the higher the yield on those projects, um, and the more people are going to pour into those projects and leave other ones. What we find with Bitcoin um, is that while it wasn't scalable on a, on a foundational level, Layer two, so what we're calling, if we think of a step above Bitcoin, so the technology being built on top of it, solve Bitcoin's scalability. So the, the biggest, probably example of this today is the Lightning Network. So the Lightning Network is this peer-to-peer -peer 
network mesh network that's be that's built on top of bitcoin and this has a higher throughput than all both visa and mastercard and solves bitcoin scalability problem this allows for those companies that have in the past few years been built in the altcoin space to be built on top of bitcoin which is a stronger uh, foundational building block something that we can we can build on for the future a lot of times too because like built bitcoin was introduced as this peer-to-peer money um digital money that because of that a lot of the problems that are being built on top of bitcoin today have high real world utility and low speculation so we see them as um more sustainable projects over the long term I think getting back to your other point on the 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 control of like Bitcoin or say uh, an altcoin um, from an investor standpoint is what's really interesting from a professional investor standpoint of venture capital money coming in within the altcoin space is like a lot of the the altcoins or the altcoin projects that have a token element to them will have this pre-token offering. Uh, for investors before their like initial token offering or before the, the token is floated to the retail population. So it gives early investors the ability to um, have a liquid asset, this token, which seems like it's a security before it's offered to the retail investors and then reap the rewards as soon as it's floated to the rest of the market. Um, it gives the investor a high degree of control over those projects, which means that they're probably not that decentralized. They're probably more concentrated with a few individuals than they like to, they'd like you to know. And, um, and it just creates this unfair environment through which the assets change hands. And with Bitcoin, that that's not, that, that can't happen. Like we've seen a number of, um, call it like the block size wars between the miners and the 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 um the people operating nodes on the bitcoin network and, and really no one no one has uh, a, a huge amount of control over bitcoin it is this is highly decentralized um digital money and that's just such a different thing to build on and from our perspective as professional investors um that's a great space to build projects on because we believe that the the bitcoin foundation will continue to exist into the future whereas a lot of these other um altcoins will probably contract they'll fail uh as the incentive structure fades and as uh capital sours to the projects into the space then we had Koji Higashi, founder of the Japanese Bitcoin community Diamond Hands, talking about what Bitcoin offers Japan amid its recent inflation. For me, the innovation was decentralization mm. and not prone to government censorship or corporation takeover, for example. Yeah. And that's exactly what Bitcoin is. But all the other blockchains, they, they don't really care about that kind of stuff. Mm. They're competing in features, right? how fast it is, how cheap it is. And to me, pursuing that route uh, might benefit you economically, financially, right? Because you're the founder, you're the middle of it. You control the protocol, yeah. the project. But to me, that that's not the innovation. As I said, 
uh, what, what got me fascinated was the absence of central control or you know lack of a single point of failure right yeah. so the way things are going for uh, non-bitcoin stuff uh, they're kind of learning the lesson right now because of the SEC regulation and stuff like mm. that uh, I, I think a little bit more people understand what we were saying what bitcoiners like me were saying you know in 2017 18 i've been saying basically the same thing since you know forever mm. like a broken record or something <laughs> people don't get it until their projects got regulated or just shut down by the government or something like right. that classified as security exactly or maybe the founder sells their tokens and you know just price crashes or something they get yeah. betrayed right uh but yeah uh for, for bitcoin i think that Otherwise, it's very difficult to differentiate from everything else. Yeah. If Coinbase or Bitcoin can take over and change, make changes to Bitcoin, the Bitcoin protocol as they wish, I think the Bitcoin fails, right? Mm. There's no difference between Bitcoin and everything else, I would say. Right. If one company, if one entity can, can right. make changes, then it's pointless. Yeah, I was just thinking uh, earlier today that so many people, they thought the innovation of Bitcoin was blockchain. Oh, yeah, when yeah, yeah. Really, the innovation was decentralization. Right. Well, at least in my opinion, right? Some yeah. people might disagree, and that's that's fine. But um, I think my way of thinking has been pretty consistent. Mm. And what's been happening this past couple of years, I, I think some of them, some of what we were saying was were vindicated or turned out correct, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, even like for the most people you know, regular people in Japan, uh, they don't think about inflation until the price of goods are going up this one or two years. It's pretty crazy, right? I can feel it myself. And yeah, 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 yeah. Japan, I mean, for so long, it's hardly had any inflation and prices more or less stayed the same. But then now, I mean, it's it's only 3%, which which sounds like such a small number compared to like nine in the US or double digits in the UK. But even 3%, like we are seeing price increases. Right. And then that 3%, it really depends on how you measure measure it, right? And then from my personal experience, things at 7-Eleven and convenience stores, I feel like the price went up by like... 20%, 30% 20%, 30% ish? Yeah, I would say some. Definitely some items, more than 3%. Yeah. 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 And like electricity, definitely electricity, more than yeah. 3%. Uh, yeah, I was shocked when I heard right. my uh, electric bill for right. this past month. So before, uh, when we preached Bitcoin, sort of like, you know, oh yeah, government control of money is not good. Uh, we'll, we'll have inflation, depreciation of yen or something. Mm. Uh, until inflation happens, people don't care at all, right? People don't listen to it. So I, I feel like now is kind of the time that uh, more and more people are worried about inflation. Then I spoke with Dea Rezkita, the organizer of the Indonesia Bitcoin conference, right before that happened. I heard it was great, I was sad to miss it, but here she's talking about why the Indonesian government banned Bitcoin payments and how Indonesians are very familiar with government seizure of their savings. Well, I mean, it makes sense because Indonesia is a is a country with weak currency, right? Uh, we had we had two big inflation in the past, back in nineteen sixty five and nineteen ninety eight. In nineteen sixty five, I think almost a thousand percent or even more. 
1998 uh, also 200% or something like that because of the uh, Asia monetary crisis. So like everyone in Indonesia is a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> like if you, everyone hoping to be millionaire, it happened in Indonesia, you know? Uh, yeah. So 1 million rupiah is equal to $60. Wow. So, um, and, and, and I think that's, that's, that's the main reason they, they want to make sure that there is still a demand on uh, Indonesian rupiah. Hmm. And obviously, um, I mean, since since the Asia monetary crisis, people are stacking dollars, people are stacking gold, and now like people are start stacking Bitcoin as a way for them to hedge against inflation because things like what happened in 1998 or like back in the past can happen again. Uh, like right now, we are we are also um, entering the the crisis, the economy crisis, so. Yeah, um, that's. I think that's the main reason, and uh, also, uh, I mean, the government always want to to have a control over uh, the money supply, right? Uh, over mm-hmm. their the money, the currency that that in in within their territory. So um, in Indonesia, they also just release like a national QR payment system that is being implemented like all over the country. And it's actually quite, quite fast, quite snappy. But of course the, the downside is that uh, when you use this, the government is always take your data, you know, it's in, it's in the mobile wallet. So they know like, where do you go? uh, Mm. What kind of things that you, purchase uh your your purchasing behavior um and i guess this is like the the pathway towards uh the cbdc uh they right. uh, indonesia also wants to uh adopt cbdc so i think the ban uh like to make sure that people are not using bitcoin as a payment is the way to to uh yeah set uh um yeah, said like a precedent that the government is going to control the money. You ask about what, uh, how is it in Indonesia? Like what type of content or context that is really relevant for us? Obviously, it's about inflation because it's always close to home. Um, we always see that prices goes up every year. It's getting harder to buy a house. It's getting harder to to you know save um, right now the the vice president just currently announced that indonesian people uh, young people is not making enough babies <laughs> and that's <laughs> that's also I, I guess you know with with japan this is also yeah. related you know with yeah. inflation uh, when things are very expensive we think twice about building a family because that mean costs more money and and you know like um, that's just decrease their confidence of uh, creating a family mm-hmm. so yeah this type of topic obviously uh, relevant for Indonesia um, yeah even even back then uh, our grandparents our parents always told us if you have money uh, save it, save it in gold. You know, like buy gold, buy gold jewelry because that's 
that's more everlasting than you can just put your money in the bank. And then we had we had history before where uh, in 1998, so many banks closed down because um, because of the monetary crisis. So like my parents, uh, they put a lot of money in this one bank. And then obviously because of the Asia monetary crisis, the bank was told them that they are going to close temporarily, but never open up until now. And then they lost all the money. Right. <laughs> so wow. yeah, uh, this, this kind of things, uh, it's, it's, um, it's what happened in Indonesia. Yeah. After that, I had on Louis Liu, founder of Mimesis Capital, to talk about Bitcoin in Taiwan, especially as geopolitical tensions heat up. And here are his thoughts on Bitcoin offering a third way for Taiwanese, rather than having to choose either China or the U.S. You know, there's reason that why I pick Bitcoin as the, you know, the asset for my family farm. Um, it has a couple benefits, right? For example, um, I think the first benefit is you can choose this middle path between U.S. and China, right? And this middle path is called Bitcoin. Uh, what, what do I mean by middle path? Is that, you know, when U.S. and China are going after each other, uh, there's no winner in that, in that, mm. in that warfare. You know, the, tr the trade war has bring down the globalization. Um, you know, their hostile, you know, foreign policy between each other have result in more conflict, real technology sanction, you know, uh, even COVID can be, be a part of this uh, political conflict. Um, so I don't think there's any winner. So if you pick like, you know, I want to escape my wealth to the U.S., you think U.S. is going to win? I mean, that's a very short-term type of uh, mindset for people to have. That's pretty easy conclusion, right? If you don't want to go to China, oh, okay, then you go to U.S., right? It's kind of like binary binary uh, thinking right now. Um, that's that's the traditional asset allocator will think. Like if you don't want to invest in China, just like Taiwanese previously, they invest heavily in China, and now because of policy issue, they cannot do business there, or there's like a lot of restriction doing business there, so they want to move away. Right. Right. But moving to Taiwan is not like a good, good outcome as well because China can take you wherever they want. Right. And so they their 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 decision is oh let's move to U.S. let's move to Singapore, and buy this U.S. dollar denominated asset you know like treasury like stocks real estate whatever, right? Um, but I don't think you know the the outcome is going to be is what you know most people would be think it would be like you know either U.S. or China. I think it's something that could come out unexpectedly, right? Coming out as unlikely winner. And I think that that's, that unlikely winner is, hmm. is Bitcoin. It's not, it, it, it's not a country, it's not a nation, but, but it's, it's kind of like cyberspace, right? Like what, what Michael Sitter has been describing is you want to escape to somewhere that has no um, political conflict, has no... Um, big government that is hovering around you, trying to seize your property, right? And and I think Bitcoin represents that middle way that people can escape into when these two largest economies in the world have conflict yeah. with each other. Um, and, and my, my focus and my belief is, I think these two countries are going to continue those, those conflicts, 
until one completely died out or, or one replaced mm. the other. Uh, it, it's going to be ongoing war for decades. And that's a bad news for the global economy. That's bad news for a lot of companies actually uh, try to build you know, um, their resources in, in China or, or resources in the US. And, and Bitcoin is kind of like, you know, it, it, it's grassroots, right? It can go anywhere. Uh, it doesn't restrict it, uh, you know, in China or US, right? It's, it's basically uh, something that lives on the internet uh, that people can buy and escape from those regimes. Next up is Graham Krizek, founder and CEO of Voltage, a lightning network company, talking about how everything of value in crypto will eventually be built on Bitcoin. As soon as you add in a counterparty um, or you make a move to decrease that decentralization, um, things start to, you know, you lose a lot of the benefits, right? You lose some of the cost savings you get on fees. You lose uh, some of that censorship resistant, you know, capability. So uh, I guess that's a kind of a long answer, but there's a being able to uh, with a lot of the upgrades that are happening inside of both on-chain Bitcoin as well as like the layer two Though all of the programmatic um, aspects that you have seen in like kind of the Web3 space with like, you know, the development of Ethereum and Solana and all of these other ones is like, ultimately, that is all coming to Bitcoin. And we can do a lot of those same things inside of Bitcoin. And if, if those are all possible inside of Bitcoin, why would you not use the strongest base layer, you know, to build on top of? Like, why would you kind of go with that less decentralized, that that um, one that requires more counterparties. And so, um, yeah, ultimately being able to bring in a lot of programmatic aspects into Bitcoin is what's happening today. And so, you know, those that are looking to build should, you know, really explore Bitcoin earnestly because it is that strongest base layer out there. It's kind of like a matter of like physics, I guess. And that like, you know, when you're sacrificing um, one property, you're like, when you're adding a property, you're giving up another. And so when you think about, um, adding in like say like speed of payments into into a blockchain um, there's something that you have to like give up in terms of adding that speed and so with something like Solana um, you know your speed is increased but you the, the 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 problem with that is is that the block like the the requirements to run a node are like uh, I can't remember the last time it looked like 20 30 grand a month or something to like run a node inside of Solana and so um, so that has caused it to be incredibly centralized i mean it's basically like a paypal or something like that where there's like you know a group of people that run the servers and you know maybe people disagree with that that's fine but like ultimately it becomes super centralized and then you you get those problems of like it going down and things like that that we have seen and so um so for that it's like you know you you increase the payment speed but really you decrease the decentralization and so you it, it comes with more problems um, same thing with, uh, being able to add like programmatic, like aspects to it. Um, well that like, you know, in something like Ethereum, like, okay, they have more, uh, maybe more native smart contract systems, but like the blockchain, um, gets so big that again, it gets very, um, hard to like actually run a node or, um, perform any of like the validation yourself or, you know, validate any of the things that are happening. And so you ultimately are left just trusting, um, whatever your source is, um, whether it's, you know, an Infura or something like that. And so you aren't able to do, uh, it's very hard to like do self-validation on top of those things. So there is always, um, there's always a trade-off in terms of like the, when you add something, you got to take away another. And so that's why uh, Bitcoin was created 
to be, you know, it was made specifically for this, like, you know, the hard money, this, this global payment network. And so it kind of, it solved that first and where a lot of the other chains are um, not they're They're kind of ignoring that and going to these other areas first. And so, um, but adding in that kind of hard money censorship resistantness uh, after the fact is, is challenging. It's all, it's almost, I would say impossible. You kind of have to start from it and, uh, and then build on top, which is, you know, building on top of, you know, uh, lightning and whatnot. And like things like messaging, it's like messaging probably shouldn't be on a blockchain for the most part, which is why like Nostra and things are great. Cause that's not a blockchain. Um, and so being able to start on like the, the hardest base, the, the most, uh, valuable base is 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 the best place to be and then you can uh, you know you don't have to worry about uh, your transaction being um, reversed or being censored or all these different things so that's why i am a, in a proponent or you know I'm, I'm suggesting that these things are going to move to uh and, and maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong like you know these other there will be more chains than bitcoin but like i think ultimately anything of value will go to bitcoin because of those aspects and that um you know bitcoin is the why would you not uh, build what you're building on top of like the most sound, most censorship resistant, most decentralized uh, base layer that ultimately gets you all of the same things um, without all of the risk that uh, comes associated with like, you know, the centralization and all these other things. Changing gears slightly, we have Alex McShane, one of the organizers of the recent Nostra conference in Tokyo, talking about why more Bitcoiners and non-Bitcoiners should try out Nostra. It's really like this grassroots uh, movement of, yeah, like you said, mostly Bitcoiners. But the weird thing is all the Bitcoiners aren't there. Yeah. Most of the Bitcoiners aren't there. They don't they don't want even want to try it. And I don't understand why. I think they were burned by Mastodon and like Blue Sky and all these other kind of fake uh, distributed technologies. Yeah. And I think also Bitcoiners, the thing they care about the most is money. And I think that's that's kind of what sets them apart from the rest of crypto. I mean, there's probably any number of things you could go into. But what I've been thinking is that the, the key difference is that Bitcoiners just care about the nature of money way more than anyone else, um, a lot more than any kind of technology thing. So then I think maybe a lot of them look at Noster and they see it as a tech thing more than a mm. more than a money thing. Even though for me, like the connection between um, uh, freedom to transact and, and freedom to communicate or free speech, um, like like many people have made the argument, they go hand in hand. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, it's interesting to hear you say that out loud because I think in my just hopeful vision for the present and the future, it's not a world where Bitcoiners are just like obsessed with money and getting rich. It's one where they're actually obsessed hmm. with um, self-sovereignty and uh, freedom to do what they want with their money and to not get called money launderers and terrorists just for wanting a little bit of privacy in their transactions. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, you're you're definitely right, man. Uh, I think, you know, they come for the they come for the number go up, but they say they stay for the freedom in the tech. So it's like, well, if Bitcoin's freedom of speech, I mean, Noster's right there with it, you know, and these, look, maybe we'll find a new solution to Tor. I mean, I think people need to double down on these. It's kind of a red flag to me that the focus of the narrative, well, that it is a narrative 
driven focus. Our attention span is very short as a Bitcoin culture. Mm. Right now, we're very focused on these ETFs that are arguably bad <laughs> for the protocol in some ways. Good for your bags, maybe bad yeah. for state capture and self-sovereignty and pr- spreading you know, adoption and, and scaling. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I when I say Bitcoiners care about money, um, mm-hmm. I mean more that they, they care about what money is uh, more than uh, just they care about getting more money. Um, although, yeah. like you say, a lot of people do come for that, uh, myself included, and then uh, hopefully stay for something else. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, maybe it'll just take a little bit more time then because it's really not such a far leap at all if you're if you've learned the skill set of private public key management, you know, why not put it to use in the Nostra domain? It's it takes two seconds. It's far faster to try Nostra than it is to try to get a Facebook account, you know, try to get an X account, pay yeah, whatever amount of dollars it is now, send a photo of yourself, your ID, your home address, your email, whatever they're requiring these days. It's there's nothing required of you except a little bit of time. So it's worth the experiment, I think. That'd be my call to action for Bitcoiners. You got to try it. Got to try Noster. Then I had the author of possibly my favorite book this year, Jason Mayer, on to talk about the appeal of Bitcoin to more left-leaning folks. And here he is talking about how governments will never actually pay back their debt and what that means for us as citizens. For a very long time, my view of the debt—it feels almost like you know Santa Claus. Like, oh my God, how did I not see this? Uh, you know, how did I not see the truth? But like politicians will talk about our government debt as if um, they're working to pay it off, or they're better than the other guy about reducing the deficit. And um, and I think that you can kind of go through your life in this sort of days thinking, yeah, the government has lots of debt and they're going to have to pay it off. But I don't know, somebody will vote somebody in and it will happen or whatever. But um, it, it, once you actually drill down and realize like um, the numbers make it impossible and it, it's literally impossible for the government to pay off the debt. And so what we need are two things. They need to um, finance the debt with more debt. So every time a you know savings bonds come due or something like a treasury bill comes due, they're just issuing a new one to pay off the old one. Um, and the other thing they need is inflation because if you have inflation, then the if you're a debtor, then the amount that you're paying back, the purchasing power is less than what you borrowed. So the government as a very huge debtor, like over 31, or I forget what the exact number is, but well over $31 trillion of debt, um, the the intention is not to pay it off. It's mathematically impossible for them to pay it off. Um, and in fact, in all likelihood, that debt will just continue to grow because they're paying it off with more debt. Interest rates are going up, which means that the amount of, you know, just to service the loans and the debt that they already have will go up. Um, and what you have is, a, a whole financial monetary system based on uh, debt, uh, uh, people owing other people money. Um, and the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that it's not easy to to create these sort of complicated financial instruments because you need you actually need the Bitcoin to do something. You can't just pretend you have it. You can't just short like you short a stock and you pretend that you have it so you can sell it. Like you can't sell Bitcoin you don't have. And so and if you owe somebody Bitcoin, um, you need to pay them back in Bitcoin um, and you can't print more Bitcoin. Right. And so the government is constantly, you know, in a position they have um, access to the money printer. They can print more dollars, which debases 
the monetary supply makes your purchasing power of the dollars you have less. Um, that is a unique position that the United States government has for the world reserve currency. And the entire system is based on their ability to do that and to essentially um, finance unlimited debt. Like they, they can just issue more and more debt. Now, a, a rational person has to look at that system and say, well, that's not sustainable forever, right? The dollar is not backed by anything real and tangible except for the the debt that the United States government has taken on and the willingness of the government to like protect, you know, uh, their monetary technology. So, um, it, you know, we can go into it further, but basically the idea is that the the system is not getting better. It's not going to improve itself. It's not going to correct for itself. And in fact, the farther we go along and the more debt that's added into the system, both private and public, um, it's just making the house of cards taller. And so when the when it finally falls, and and there are examples throughout history of of um, fiat uh, economic systems that are based, you know, getting off the gold standard or getting away from sound money, like. Throughout history, tons of examples of economies, countries, empires collapsing, um, and it's it it feels scary and unfortunate. But like it's actually not as scary when you look at the world through a Bitcoin lens because you can kind of see what the solution is. Two episodes ago was our interview with Nick Malster of Fountain, the podcast app. I'm always recommending you try out. And in these clips, he's talking about what Lightning uniquely enables that traditional money could not. Um, so, yeah, it, it has a, a lot of benefits. Um, you know, there's things you can do on the Lightning Network that you just couldn't do with fiat currencies because of the fees, because of the slow speed. Um, some of the limit, you know, there's other limitations as well. Um, but it just makes money completely programmable. And what I mean by that is that you can send small amounts of money, um, you know, one after a time in very short intervals. So if you're listening to a podcast, you can send money to the podcaster for every minute you're listening. Or if you're listening to a podcast, you can also earn money for every minute you're listening. You can even do it on a second by second basis, which is what we do with our ads. So in Fountain, you can earn money just by listening to ads. Um, every second you listen, you get paid. So yeah, they, these are things which just, which just aren't possible with, with fiat currency. Yeah, I think that really what value for value does is it, it restores freedom to the listener and to the creator we don't think that advertising as a dominant model for monetization is is going to go away anytime soon um, but we do think that value for value complements it quite nicely and that podcasters don't really have to make a choice whether they are getting revenue from advertising or from value for value the two can actually work complementary to each other um, and typically, this is what we see for podcasters. They have several different sources of income. Some of them will have a subscription service. Some might also have ads. You know, some might have uh, workshops or events they do. Some might sell their own products. Um, I think once you've built a successful podcast, it's an incredible distribution platform to build any business on top of it. You've kind of seen what some of the big uh, kind of streamers and video cre creators have done, like Mr. Beast with launching products on top of their their established platform and community. Um, but yeah, like I said, the freedom that uh, value for value gives podcasters means that they don't have to make that choice. They can use value for value to complement everything else. And we are also seeing some podcasters go 100% audience funded through value for value. I mean, you know, uh, no agenda who really kind of coined 
value for value and, and, and put that model into practice with their podcast, which launched, I think it was back in 2005. It's been going at least 15 years. They started out just by taking, you know, checks in the post or PayPal or whatever it was. And um, now there's a much easier way to do that. And then also we've seen podcasts like uh, Odell's Citadel Dispatch, which is also 100% audience funded. And they negate the need for ads completely because they put such an emphasis on supporting the show directly. So it gives it gives uh, podcasters freedom and it gives them choice. And I think also for listeners too, it gives them freedom. They're not tied down into like a $5 or $10 direct debit they're paying for a subscription every month or a, pay, or a Patreon subscription. They're only paying when they get value from the podcast. Uh, and they're able to send that value directly in that moment as they're listening. And that is freedom, you know, that that it's kind of no strings attached. You pay what you want, whenever you want, or you don't have to pay at all. And finally, a short clip from Nostrasia, Edward Snowden and Jack Dorsey talking about app development going in a very concerning direction and how Nostra is the antidote. I think there's an authoritarian center of gravity uh, that is pulling all manner of governments toward it, right? Uh, the Chinese government is very authoritarian many governments around the world are very authoritarian. Uh, but what's interesting is that we're seeing more liberal governments becoming more authoritarian. Uh, COVID was really a bright red warning flag uh, that it doesn't take much. Uh, sense of panic, sense of emergency, we're seeing the same thing with uh, Israel and Hamas right now. Uh, where we go, but, you know, somebody's crossed the line. There's a 9-11 moment uh, and the old rules no longer apply. Classic rights will no longer be protected. The world has changed, so we as institutions will change. There's not time just to plead for a vote. There's not time for a conversation. This is an emergency, don't you understand? And so we need to use the maximum extent of our capability, of our technology, um, to confront the threat. And step by step, bit by bit, uh, you what you see is you see China and the United States becoming more like. You see Europe and China becoming more like. They still differ. There is distance between them. But the distance is now. And, and that really is what should alarm us, particularly when you start looking at capability, when you look at surveillance, when you look at QR codes, when you look at control of money flows, when you look at control of communications, when you look at real name policies and identities, when you look at the fact that there's you know, an everything app uh, in China, like WeChat, it does you know payments, it does chat, it does identity, it does social media, uh, it does travel, it does tickets. Um, but the government in China requires you to go to an office and ship ID in order to activate your account. And then you hear Elon Musk saying, "Well, X is going to be in everything app. He's starting to pay people, but then you have to tie it to your identity in order to get paid." Uh, these are things that should really alarm. This deal we're moving, like the um, the everything app is going to be our future. And I love what you said about um, the Chinese and liberal governments around the world becoming a lot more alike and the gap shrinking. And it feels like the, the best yeah, thing- it's just a gravity. Yeah, and the best thing that we can do knowing that there will be these everything apps and probably competing across literal state lines is to have a third option, which is something like Nostra and something like Bitcoin where you do have this um, this potential for all these apps to work together 
in a very seamless way without the individual using them, having to consider how they switch between. That, that was one of the most powerful things for me in encountering NOS for the first time is I could literally take my secret key and go to another client and everything just worked. And if you yeah. expand that to all these micro apps and the universe of micro apps, then you basically have um, you basically have the everything app, but you have it on an open protocol where everyone can build. And it's a real competitive uh, answer to what China is building and, and what companies in the US and, and Western countries are building. And will most likely, um, given the direction, is, is going to capture all of us. So we have an option, and it's in this room, fortunately. And I want to thank you all for. Okay, now some bonus clips from my Nostrasia interviews, because even though I tried to focus my questions on Nostr, there were so many well-known Bitcoiners there, I couldn't resist asking some Bitcoin questions as well. I couldn't squeeze them into last episode, but I really wanted to share them in some form, so here they are. I'm Max Hillebrand. I am an economist and freedom lover and have been working on Bitcoin and freedom tech for a couple of years now, uh, and I'm focused on the, uh, the privacy of it too. Uh, so building technologies where the user is free and protected and secure, uh, even against the service provider. Were you doing that kind of thing before you got into Bitcoin? No, before Bitcoin I was uh, very much in the economics rabbit hole mm. uh, and then uh, slowly fell down the free software rabbit hole and that was what sparked then my love of Bitcoin. Okay. Um, and what kind of things are you doing in, in Bitcoin these days? Uh, contributing to numerous free software projects and helping out wherever I can. Hmm. Uh, most notably is Wasabi Wallet. It's okay. a Bitcoin wallet for a desktop uh, and we're having a lot of fun building it. Yeah, where's that out that out right now? Um, I hear about Wasabi Wallet. I haven't tried it out myself, but I but I want to. Um, what are you seeing in terms of user adoption and and what are like the recent features that you're rolling out? Mm -hmm. I think uh, finally, after almost well 10 years of, of research and development in this space, I think we've figured out a way to transact Bitcoin privately and right, to make uh, blockchain transactions that nobody can trace where the money is coming from or going to. That was one of, if not the biggest problem of the Bitcoin network. And I'm comfortable to say that it is uh, reasonably addressed now and, and fixed. Mm. Uh, and now we're just at a point where we are scaling it out. Uh, we want to reach more platforms. Um, uh, for example, being able to sign these coin joint transactions on the hardware wallet, right? being able to move money privately even when the private keys are very secure. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a key important part. And then making it run on mobile, uh, because Wasabi is very heavy software. It's probably the most sophisticated Tor software uh, out in the wild. And currently, it's just not feasible to run on mobile phones yet. Mm -hmm. So we're working closely with the Tor project uh, on a new Rust Tor implementation, which will hopefully make it possible to have such powerful privacy techniques on the go as well. What do you think about uh, blockchain surveillance companies? That's kind of an issue, especially recently with the Hamas incident, a lot of talk about uh, crypto funding terrorism. Um, Obviously, there's arguments on both sides, uh, being able to track payments for uh, going towards nefarious actors, but then on the other hand, the privacy concerns of the average citizen. Um, what do you think uh, the right balance is for that when it comes to the Bitcoin blockchain? 
Yeah, I think that um, criminals have, well, a lot of money because they just stole it. Mm. <laughs> and they're happy to spend it on, on whatever shape or form so that they can be secure and protected. Right? Uh, and uh, that is something that's just part of reality. Right? There's unfortunately bad people out there and we will have to deal with them. Right? Thankfully, there are numerous investigative uh, or, or police work tools available uh, to, to catch criminals and to stop them from, from doing bad things. Right? And, and that's a very good thing. Mm. Uh, but simultaneously, there's a vast majority of people are, are amazing right? and, and just want to protect themselves and, and their families. Uh, and those people who, who don't have much money uh, to spend on defense and protection, uh, they, they should still be reasonably secure when, when interacting in cyberspace and, and dealing with other people. Mm. And so the, the idea of Wasabi is, is to decrease the cost of defense while increasing the cost of attack. Uh, I think it's a fundamental, peaceful and uh, defensive technology that when uh, uh, proliferated into the right hands will have an extraordinary amount of, of good mm. uh, to humanity. Uh, so yes, it's, it's uh, a, a, well, a, a powerful tool uh, but uh, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think we've seen especially how Bitcoin as a whole is, is changing people to act a lot more ethically and peacefully. Uh, and that's why I continue building it. Mm. This is maybe a basic question, but I think it's pretty common. Um, in fact, I was drinking with some friends the other night and uh, we started talking about uh, some payment service and I said, I don't use it or I don't want to use it because they're just asking for more and more data. And my friends said, well, like, I don't have anything to hide. Like, what's the big deal? Um, what would you say to someone who is like, well, I'm a, I'm a good citizen. I don't, I'm not worried about uh, privacy. Like, I have nothing to hide. Well, if you have nothing to hide, you're a very boring person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, of course you have something to hide, right? And wh what does that mean? It means that with different people, you talk differently about different subjects. Right? Uh, the conversation that we're having right now is very different to a conversation you might have with your friend or with your wife or with your kids mm. right? or with your business partners. Um, we, uh, and, and that's a beautiful thing of, of human relations, that they are so, so versatile and can be so unique and different. Right? But that uniqueness means that, that you can choose how to talk and to whom to talk and what to talk about. And that is what privacy is about. It's not about hiding per se and, and being anonymous. It's about having the choice of what to share to whom. And, and uh, if some people want to share as much as possible with as many people as possible, sure, that's great. And you're still a private individual doing so because it's your choice of publishing this for the entire world to see. Uh, but very the same in, uh, lane of thinking is a lot of things you simply don't want the entire world to know. Mm. Because to our earlier point, there are some pretty bad people out there who, if they would know a lot of your secrets, they could probably do you a lot of harm. Uh, and so we want to protect people from those, uh, from those criminals. And the cheapest defense is privacy or anonymity. Right. Uh, because if the attacker does not know where you are or how much money you have or where you're spending it, well, then he literally cannot come and steal it from you because he doesn't even know where to start. Thinking uh, far into the future, if Bitcoin becomes a, a much larger part of the financial system, I mean, maybe not as far as hyper-Bitcoinization, but just a, a much larger role in the financial system, which it, it seems like that's the trend. Um, do you think that kind of becomes uh, less secure world where where people are securing more and more of their own 
wealth rather than trusting it to institutions. Um, do you think people have to think a lot more about personal defense? Do you think there'll be, uh, do you think it makes the average person more vulnerable to theft? No, I actually think quite on the contrary, right? We've built technologies where theft has become extremely expensive. Uh, and however, these tools only work if you take great responsibility of them yourself, right? Uh, because as soon as you trust a third party with your security or privacy, then that is a potential security hole uh, where it can get exploited. Mm -hmm. right? So we've come so used to having bank runs, etc., right, or or hyperinflationary events, mm. um, and th that does not have to be the reality. Like that uh, is not something that everyone has to experience all the time, right? Uh, we, we can work on technologies that that protect individuals and the cool thing is with software we can automate a lot of these things and remove a lot of the complexities so I think that uh, just like nowadays right when when you're calling a website on, on your browser you don't even know the multiple layers of encryption and, and security standards that are actively being applied in order to ensure that you have a safe journey through cyberspace right they just work in the background by default for everyone all the time Right, with minimal mental transaction costs. Uh, and this seems to me to be the trajectory of, of these technologies. Right? The, the cost of defense becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as we advance the technologies on, on numerous fronts. Sure, uh, I'm, I'm NVK, the CEO of Quinkite. Uh, we make the code card, the SATS cards, the block clocks, and another oh. <laughs> 50,000 products. Oh, a lot of products, actually. Yes. Yeah, I'm aware of cold card, but I didn't know you guys made the block clock as well. Yeah, we, we do. We do. Uh, that started uh, quite a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. What's the? How would you describe the hardware wallet landscape right now? Because with the with the ledger thing last year, it <laughs> seems like a lot of attention came to cold card. But uh, where do you think we're at right now? Yeah. So um, I think like we 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 are the only sort of uh, larger scale of of Bitcoin land, right? That like that takes a, a different approach to these things. So. You know, uh, Trezor traditionally is like unsecured device, uh, supports other shit coins, but it's open source, mm -hmm. right? Um, Ledger is quite secure, uh, but it's also like, you know, shit coin land and uh, closed source. Uh, and now they have backdoor as a service, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is a problem for some people. Um, and uh, we, we take this sort of approach where we we have we don't compromise on security, right? It's like a very secure device. Uh, it has a lot of features, so like all the possible advanced features you could want. It's Bitcoin only, um, and uh, you know it's got what like I don't know how many years in the market now, so it's fairly well tested. And we're constantly upgrading the hardware, mm -hmm. like our competitors. Uh, we're always trying to do new things, um, and uh, and you know it's always this fine balance between um, offering something that is very secure has a lot of features, but it's also sort of like easy enough for most people to use. So that's sort of like the dance that we have with yeah. all the features that we make. Do you think that at the end of the day, a hardware wallet that is kind of normie friendly will will always be criticized by the hardcore Bitcoiners? Or is there is there some way of pleasing both parties? I, I think people have different needs, right? Like the market right now, it's still quite small. That's why the competitors are so sort of intense about it. Yeah. It's just not enough customers, right? So people are competing hard for those customers. 
Uh, but I think like different people have different needs, right? You know, realistically speaking, the majority of the people in the world will always have coins and exchanges, right? It's sad, but it's true. Yeah. Uh, but but then like you know we have a much bigger chance now to self custody than you did with gold, for example, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to have a safe at home and men's of guns and things. So you know it, it's going to do well. Um, I think um, I think the people who have uh, more money. Uh, or have, um, say, uh, a more uh, idealistic view of things, uh, will probably gravitate to, to coin-kite devices. Mm. Um, and then I think people who, you know, are, are seeking to trade shit coins or, you know, like looking for something, you know, maybe for grandma or whatever, might use something like Ledger. I'm Nicolas Dorier. I'm, uh, I'm in Bitcoin since 2015. I learned about Bitcoin a bit after MTGOX explosion. Um, and I became kind of interested in the tech, so I started working on, lib on uh, .NET library to learn about Bitcoin. That is, this .NET library is not called NBitcoin. Mm. This is the biggest uh, library on uh, .NET for, for doing stuff on Bitcoin. And also, of course, a BTC Pay server a few, few years later, which is kind of a, the payment processor number one for accepting uh, Bitcoin uh, for your store in a self-sovereign manner. Yeah. Uh, are you based in Japan? Yes. And how long have you been in Japan? Uh, around two, 2015 as well. Okay, yeah. so pretty much the whole time you were getting into Bitcoin. You yep. Were, yep. Ah. And uh, what are you doing now? Uh, so now I'm working for uh, Digital, Digital Garage, uh, oh, yeah. which is a Japanese company here. And uh, basically they let me work on BTC Pay server. So even if they don't officially show up in the list of sponsors, because they didn't do a grant to the foundation, they're still like supporting BTC Pay by uh, basically paying my salary as well. Oh, that's amazing. So, so yeah, it's, uh, they have been very supporting like since day, day, day one. And uh, yeah, it's uh, has been very awesome from them. Yeah, it seems like there's not many Bitcoin companies in Japan, or even like within crypto companies, there's not many Bitcoiners. Um, has that been your experience, or? Well, so there is a uh, one company that is called Nayuta. Uh, they did a, li a Lightning not long ago. Now uh, I don't remember what they are doing, but yeah, they they are still working on Lightning, um, and uh, there is a small Bitcoin community. Uh, the problem, so. One of the problems in, in Japan is that they kind of barrier language. So the Bitcoin community here that I'm part of is more like a foreign a mm -hmm. foreigner. So we are not really, yeah, like pushing the Japanese uh, the Japanese um, communities. Mm -hmm. I think it's more like nowadays more Teruko and uh, and Koji, for example, that try to push this. Diamond hands. Uh, with diamond hands, yes. And uh, like the Bitcoin hacker meetup, uh, it's more like foreigners. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, definitely, th there is a community, there is some interest here, but uh, Japan has been overwhelmed with shitcoin. Yeah. Like it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, when you go to a coffee shop, very often, you listen to the next table of fucking scammer trying to enroll somebody to buy their shitcoin. Mm. Like it's it's that bad. And uh, they they had like some lots of blockchain conference and we we just say bullshit. Like they they, they have been like um, Jap Japan is not the example of a Bitcoin country. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think 
the barrier is more language, like not enough materials have been translated, or do you think it's more cultural that uh, the maybe the way that Bitcoin is often presented doesn't really speak to the Japanese people? It's hard to say. So there, there has been, uh, for example, the Bitcoin standard have been uh, translated in Japanese. So there is effort to, to do like uh, Japanese um, Japanese contents. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I feel that Japanese are very like trusting their governments to a certain extent. So of course, they, they know they're they are doing shit, but like to a certain extent, they are kind of happy with the, how things are. Like you can see in Tokyo, like we have very good infrastructure, so there's not too many, too much thing to complain about governments. Yeah. So I guess very often when we introduce Bitcoin, we take the, we we commit from the point of view of central bank screwing up a currency, for example. They never had this. Like for I don't know how many years they never had inflation. Right. So it's it's not kind of a a good way to get hooked. By, by Bitcoin. So on my side, I got hooked by Bitcoin because I got abused by banks before. Right. Like, so it immediately ring to me. But for somebody that I've been always in the system and I've never had any major problem, they don't see a way of, of uh, a need of Bitcoin. So I think it's a bit, uh, bit why, I guess. Mm -hmm. I guess. Hi, I'm Daniel, the CEO of Wallet of Satoshi. Um, yeah, we, we run the, the world's best lightning wallet, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, yeah, we're all based in Australia and have uh, been running it for a little while. Uh, what were you doing before Wallet of Satoshi? Um, well, I actually started with another company, Living Room of Satoshi, in about two, of 2014, which is a bill payment service in Australia. So it um, people can pay their electricity bills, their rent and stuff with Bitcoin. Um, yeah, it was early on and I wanted to try and grow Bitcoin adoption. That seemed like an obvious way to do it, to let people pay their bills. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's still running in Australia. We um, pay people's wages in Bitcoin as well, which is pretty cool. Wow. Um, but to bring it to a wider audience, I mean, we just want to keep growing adoption and Lightning came around and so we, we shifted our focus to Wallet of Satoshi. Was it like uh, when Lightning came out, you, you were immediately interested, you wanted to work on it or, or did it take some convincing? Yeah, interestingly, we tried to set up a point of sale system before Lightning mm -hmm. um, at Brisbane Airport. We we got maybe two or three hundred merchants to try and see if we could use Bitcoin as a retail payment system. And it became very obvious that Bitcoin is not good at that. It wasn't designed for that. It's not really the purpose of money or the base layer of money to do that. Um, so when the idea for a layer two, like Lightning, started came, coming around, uh, that pricked up my ears immediately, and I was just following it um, ever since. And yeah, we wanted to to make a wallet to, to get people using this um, as a as a retail proper retail payment system. My background's in <clears throat> banking as well. I worked at Mastercard for a little while and um, banks. And yeah, so uh, I mean, to bring consumers on board, you need a slick, cheap, fast retail payment system, and Lightning mm -hmm. is it. Yeah. What do you think about the recent uh, criticisms? Or there's been some developers who have, who have been pointing out some potential flaws. And I mean, there's always been detractors who say like oh, Lightning's not gonna not gonna work. Um, how concerned are you about those things? What do you think the the path is for the Lightning Network going forward? Mm. 
Well, I think the fundamentals for Lightning are pretty solid. The idea of it being a layer two and working the way it does works pretty well. Obviously, it's still a very early technology. Um, we're, we're trying to, to grow adoption of this technology and find its limits mm. and um, help to engineer out those limits so we can expand it to the whole world. But no, we're very bullish for Lightning and think it's, it's going to be the solution. Mm -hmm. um, and as we can see, um, it's now being used by the NOSTA protocol as well yeah. uh, to do even more incredible things and building layers on top of that layer two of Lightning. Yeah. Do you think it'll, I mean, right now, if you talk scaling Bitcoin, it's pretty much Lightning Network and then maybe a few other things that are just starting to come out. Do you think things will stay that way, like most of the diversity or or different things being built will be kind of a layer three on top of Lightning? Or do you think some of these things we're seeing come out right now will uh, compete with Lightning mm. or grow the the layer two pie um, so that we have just a variety of so-called L2s mm. in the future? Um, I think the fundamental idea of scaling in layers is, is sound. I mean, you see that on the internet, you see that in the current banking system, and that's what will happen with Bitcoin. Um, when it comes to specifics about those layers, I, I think there's no way to know, and we just try things out and see if they work and mm. then change them. I mean. I was bullish on Namecoin when it came out. I thought that was the solution for, for DNS on the internet. Um, but it just didn't pan out for one reason or another. Mm. Um, but but we're pretty confident with what's happening with Lightning, so we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Was Namecoin uh, on Bitcoin? Uh, it was a separate blockchain. Okay. Um, it was basically a clone of Bitcoin that Satoshi, I think, wrote himself. Oh, really? Um, to try and solve the still unsolved problem of of um, the security of the DNS system, mm. which I think still is the Achilles heel of the internet, and I hope someone's working on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with Lightning wallets, there's a spectrum of, of well, from non-custodial to fully custodial. I think uh, Wallet of Satoshi maybe skews a bit more towards the custodial side, uh, prioritizing user convenience and I mean it's great like that's that's the one I started with that's the one I started my girlfriend with mm -hmm. that's uh, I mean you see Joe Nakamoto going around the world onboarding people to wallet of Satoshi and mm -hmm. and some people criticize that but I think yeah. like it's it's the logical first step the like a foot in the door um, do you yeah how, how do you guys think about that mm. balance and um, do you think there is a product that could satisfy both like normies or newbies and hardcore Bitcoiners? Mm, that's a good question. And I think people, it's good that people are very passionate about that because, because this is such an open protocol. Um, people are trying all sorts of things and seeing what they like and um, are very open to criticism about it too. But coming again from the banking background, I mean, the banking system and the fiat system underneath it is our number one enemy. Um, and coming from working in that system, you see how closed it is. Like you've got the, the dollar controlled by the reserve banks and then you've got the banking system, but the banking system is completely closed. Like you have to have special permission to use it. Like you, you can't withdraw money from your bank in any way mm. digitally. Yeah. Like you, all you can do is ask them to send it to another bank. Whereas Lightning and Bitcoin allows anybody to use it and not just anybody companies as well so if you want to make a payments company 
you don't have to request access to the Lightning payment system from the government. You can just start up and start using it. Mm. So there's going to be all kinds of providers, custodial, non-custodial, um, at all levels of, of these layers of the, of the payment system. And I'm just so excited that this is, is possible and it's a proper alternative to the fiat system that we've been living with for 50 years. Yeah. And that's it. 10 episodes so far, 11 counting this one, and many more to come. Big thanks to everyone who's been listening regularly, following the show, and even boosting it with sats on Fountain. I'm going to do something special with those, some kind of giveaway or contest, so stay tuned for details of that, and you could walk away with some sweet, sweet Satoshis. If you've been paying attention, you probably noticed the show format has been nothing like what I outlined in the very first intro trailer, but I am still working toward that format with some recurring guests and more focus on the local Japan scene, as well as the wider macroeconomic environment into which Bitcoin fits. Feedback is always welcome. Thank you so much for listening, and talk to you again soon. GM Radio.